I'm always amazed how the Lord puts things together that we don't plan. I was going to be preaching, teaching on, continuing a series on the life of David, but I just compelled by the Spirit, I think, to shift for the next couple of weeks and go to the Gospel of John. And then as these gals weren't scheduled on their schedule weeks ahead to be able to sing that song, but I changed my message, the special got changed, and it is amazing how the words to that special blend to what we want to talk about in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1, if you would turn there this morning. And while you're turning there, we're going to start at the very end of the Gospel of John for just a minute or so. So if you want to put your finger, put your paper at the beginning of John, chapter 1, and then flip all the way to the last chapter, I'd appreciate that. Let's do this this morning. Let's pretend we're not real smart. Okay? Just, we're going to pretend. Now, some of you get it out of your system, look at the person next to you and say, you're not, and get it done. So you've got that all cleared. Well, let's pretend we're not real smart, especially in the area of we really don't understand what Christmas is all about. We haven't heard a whole lot about it. We don't have much background. In fact, we're kind of like the people when in the early New Testament era that all of a sudden they're hearing for the very first time about a Jesus, about a man, a God, man coming to this earth and he's born in Bethlehem and the story's starting to unfold and let's pretend we don't know much and so that we're trying to figure out who is this Jesus? What child is this? What, what's the story about? What's the message? And if we want to get informed, we're going to have to go to the Bible. And some of you were like me, that when we say we, years ago, we pretend that we didn't know anything, some of us didn't. Some of us grew up in churches that did not encourage us to read the Bible. We heard some traditional ideas about Jesus, but we didn't understand. And so we were exposed for the very first time, not through our churches, but through somebody's witness, and encouraged to pick up the Bible and start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel stories, those biographies about Jesus Christ. And just to clarify, for somebody who may be here, who doesn't understand, or somebody may be listening, they aren't four stories about four different characters or Jesus, as somebody asked me not too long ago, did Jesus come four times? No, they're four different authors or painters coming at different views of Jesus, giving material that their particular audience could relate to. And the one that we want to talk about in particular is the Gospel of John and what John relayed. And if you want to get the most sense out of it, we have to just give you a little bit of background. John only covers a handful of days of Jesus' ministry. He covers a lot more of his teaching, his preaching, but he doesn't cover a lot of the details and a lot of the events that the other stories or the other Gospels cover. But what he does do is he gives a disclaimer. At the very end of the book, he's talking about this idea of saying, hey, listen, I'm writing unto you, and, and I want you to catch at the very beginning, in verse, at the very end, where he writes in verse 24 of the last chapter, he says, this is the te- disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there were th- also many other things that Jesus did which if they should be written, every one of them, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So we have a disclaimer. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough space to tell you all about Jesus and what he did. That's true right here this morning as well. We don't have enough time and space to give you all the details, but we want to focus in on exactly what John focused in. He was writing to a particular group of people, and as he's writing, as we read in chapter 20, 
if you go to chapter 20 and look at the last couple of verses there, he makes comment there were many other miracles or signs, simeons, truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe. Now remember this gospel is written as well to believers. And it's written to unbelievers to introduce them to Jesus. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. And so John is writing. He says, I don't have enough time, but I'm writing with this in mind. I want you to believe. I want you who are followers of Christ to believe so that you have life even more abundant. I want those of you who do not know Christ as your Savior, you are not sure you're on your way to heaven. You don't know and haven't ever called upon Him to forgive you of all your sins and give you eternal life. You're still relying on your religion, your baptism, or you're relying on some other deity or your family or friends or religious system. I want you to believe in Jesus. So with that in mind, what he does is he gives us some of these miracles and some of these ideas and teachings and lessons of Jesus that help us to find out who Jesus is. That moves us to a belief in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is the other Gospels, they start different than John. I'm talking in particular Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke, you guys already know. If you've heard the Christmas story, you know of those accounts that, that are written in Matthew and Luke about the angels appearing to Joseph and to Mary and to Zacharias to predicting about John the Baptist and then later Jesus being born and having to go to Bethlehem because of the taxation. All of that is included in Matthew's beginning and Luke's beginning to give you a background of who Jesus was. And the reason that Matthew wrote is Matthew's writing to Jews So in order to get their attention, he relates Jesus Christ, his very beginning, to Jewish heroes. He tells the the genealogy of Jesus that he came through David, that he eventually gives all the information of how he was tied to Abraham. Makes sense if you're writing to the Jews that they would have to know that. Where Luke is writing to the Gentiles. And he is writing, and he's more open. He gives the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And that way he's related to all of us. But it's interesting, John does something different. In John chapter 1, in the very beginning, is John relates Jesus Christ's beginning to God. He takes us to God. In fact, in John chapter 1, that's where we want to focus this morning. We want to start with what you just read as a congregation a few moments ago. In John chapter 1, in the first 18 verses, we are going to get an introduction to Jesus. But it is interesting if you read it through real quickly. You won't find Jesus' name specifically mentioned until the very end. You just, you just hear about there was this word, there was this light, there was this one but he doesn't name him, and I've got to, my, to wonder to myself, why is it that he's writing this open letter, but he doesn't name the name of Jesus? I can't help but think that maybe what he wants to do is just get the attention of all the audience. To just start talking about this great person and getting everybody this little taste so they want to know more. Well, who is it? Who is it? And he doesn't tell the specific name until later on in the introduction. But the introduction is fabulous. It is amazing. It is one of the most thrilling texts of scriptures that I've studied and enjoyed to just look at in depth for quite a while. And I've thoroughly enjoyed the study on the life of David. We'll get back to that. But this week was just such 
a blessing to go through John 1. And I fear, I absolutely fear, one, I won't be able to communicate well to you. Two, the way I'm going to communicate it to you will seem so dry and seem too meaty for some and not simple enough. And I fear whether you'll feel and get the same benefits I did. But bear with me and try to follow along if you would. And watch what John does. John is emphasizing certain things about Jesus. One of them that stood out to me was Jesus' authority. He starts off talking about this person. I want to tell you his life account. He is somebody really important. He is a great authority. He starts off doing that by telling us about the Word. And he uses certain titles that depict right away somebody important. He starts off in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. In order to fully understand, let's put ourselves back in the sandals to right, right around that year that John was writing. Let's jump back into the first century. Let's go right around that 70 AD time period. And what would you know, if you were a Jewish person, what would you know when somebody would, would bring up the idea, the Word? Well, if you studied it all, if you were trained at all in some of the synagogues, you would know that when they were writing copies of the Old Testament, they were making uh, multiple different copies of it and translations of the Hebrew to bring it up to modern Hebrew that people could understand, that what they did is the people who wrote the Scriptures, they didn't want to say or write Yahweh, Jehovah. They didn't want to do that. Because his name was so holy. They, 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 they were so reverential that those scholars, at times, they would phrase it a little bit different. And what shows up in a lot of the copies, or what we call the Targums, is they would insert another word. They would insert Memra in the Hebrew. Just to give an idea that this was, this was Yahweh, this was, but we'll, we won't say his name because it's, it's too holy to say. Do you know what memorable means in the Hebrew? I, I'll give you a guess from John 1. The word. It's the idea of the word. So when he's writing to Jews and saying, in the beginning was the word, they would understand exactly what he meant. You know, in fact, they weren't the only ones that did this. There's a lot of Greek writings and Greek scholars that when they would refer to what keeps the world in place, what, what is the one or the principle, the power that maintains the universe where the sun comes up every day and goes down and we have the seasons? And Greek philosophers, though they would believe in multiplicity of gods, they, in their writings, they often put in a word that would describe this power, this source, this authority that kept the world going. And they would call it Logos in their writings. Anybody know what Logos is translated into? The Word. So when these people are of that era, when they're reading, they understand more than we do in our, in our modern-day American culture. They understood the Word meant somebody who was divine, somebody who was God. And they would catch that right away from just that phrase, that this was somebody with great authority. No wonder that it shows up again where in the book of Revelation we have Jesus Christ called the Word of God. No wonder in the book of Hebrews that is written to Jews as well as to Gentiles that he writes and he says, in the last days, 
the one who was speaking on behalf of God, the ultimate person, the Word of God, he calls Jesus Christ. No wonder we have this idea then that just looking at that very first phrase, in the beginning was the Word, we have already an indication of the authority of Jesus Christ. He was the ultimate above all creation. But he goes a little bit further. He adds a little bit more to this word description of Jesus. He makes it clear to you and me that he's eternal, that he's not like us, a created being, but rather he's eternal. Because it says, in the beginning was. Now the way that he constructs this, in the original language that, it was, that it's written, this was has the idea in the past, in the present, and in the future. The was is for all time. In the beginning, for all time, past, present, and future, the Word. In fact, he not only says it once that way, but three times in these first couple of verses, he emphasizes the eternality, the always existence of Jesus, the Word. In fact, if you go a little bit further through the text, don't you immediately think of Genesis 1.1? When you read this, in the beginning, what does it say in Genesis? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, the Word. We, we obviously catch the parallel for it. And the author is stressing to us, and you'll see it in verse 3. Look at verse 3 where he comments and he says about creation. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He's, saying, he's making it very clear. Jesus was before creation. He was eternal. He was before time. You say, well, when did he begin? He, he always was. Well, I can't figure that out. That's because you and I think of time and space. We are finite, but he was beyond. It's making it very clear. Jesus is beyond time and space. He was forever. That's why we come up with Jesus being described elsewhere where it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place before the mountains were brought forth or you formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are the ever-existent one. Well, he uses that of Jesus. He makes that comment about him. That makes perfect sense to me with now that Jesus later on says, before Abraham, I was. Where John, who was born months, after, uh, months before Jesus, he says, before me, he was. Well, Jesus was eternal. He was ever. Something else that stands out in the text. He was with God. Did you read that? In the beginning, he says, was the word. And the word was with God. Why does he say it that way? What is he trying to stress to us about Jesus? Just that he was a companion of God? I, I think there's much more, folk. I think there's a really deep, deep teaching here that some of you say it's not important, but it is so important to the idea of our faith. What he's telling us is that Jesus and God, though they were the same, they were distinct. There was a difference there was a distinction between Jesus and God. Though Jesus was God, he was still different from God. How so? How does that work? How does Jesus, who is God, be different from God? The only way that we know how to explain this is something that the Bible, and we talked about this in Sunday school here a week or so ago, of, of what is the doctrine of the Trinity how it is very clear that three are called God, but at the same time, there is one God. How is that possible? Because of that doctrine of the Trinity. And you say, well, explain it to me. I can't. 
I can't logically explain it. All I can tell you is this is what the Scripture teaches. This is what the Scriptures tells us. There's nothing in our existence in our world that we, can, that we can say, well, this explains because this is beyond us. This is trying to understand God with our finite minds. And so what we know in Scriptures is we know that there are multiple times where God speaks as a singular God, but also in a, in a plural sense. Do you remember Genesis 1? Let us make man in our image. But it's one person speaking. Okay? And he's not psychotic. He's not somebody, somebody that's irrational. This is God speaking, saying, I am one, and yet I am three. Do you remember what it says in Isaiah 6? After the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. All of a sudden, from the throne of heaven, the question is asked, who will go for us, says the Lord God. Okay, so he's one, but there are plurality, there's a plurality here. Do you, do you remember what it says in Matthew chapter 28? It says that you are to be baptized in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have this time and time and time again presented in Scripture. In fact, there's passages in the Old Testament. Somebody, you'll, you'll run into this. I, I shared in Sunday school how I ran into this phone call a week ago Friday here at the church. Somebody challenging this doctrine. Who said, nowhere in the Old Testament does it ever give any indication of a trinity. Well, then you, have to, you, have, you haven't read Ma, uh, Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48 talks about how the Lord says he will send his son and his spirit and he calls, the father calls the son Yahweh or Jehovah. You have the same thing repeated again further on in, in Isaiah. You have indications, proofs that there is this uniqueness, this three-in-one that we can't fully understand, but it was real. And it is real that Jesus and the Father were united in one, and yet they had a distinction between them. And so what's happening is the author is trying to reveal to us this, this unique individual, this God who is part of the Godhead, he was with God, but then he goes a little bit further. And what's your next phrase say? He, he was God. He was God. Have any of you had anybody come to your door, knock on your door and say, hey, according to this verse, Jesus isn't God? Have you run into this? Okay, you will. Okay, because this is the season that they're going to come by. Okay, and they're going to knock and, they, and you say, well, I believe, and you're going to do this. You're going to say, well, in my Bible, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's very clear. Jesus was God. And they're going to say, well, do you understand your Greek Bible? And you and I would say, well, not that well. Well, we understand that what it says in verse 1 is it doesn't have the T-H-E in the original language, the, what we call is the, ar the article. It just, it leaves it blank. So it should read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. A God. And you go, oh, I never heard that at church. You know, does pastor know that? Okay? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I do know that that's there. And let me give you a little bit more. I, I, I'm not a scholar at all in the, in the original language. 
But let me just help you. Write this in your Bible. The verse 1 isn't the only one that in the original language has no article before God. That could be, if you want to be contrary to the Greek language, if you want to say, well, it doesn't say the God. It, there's several other times it does that in this very same verse, the uh, passage. In verse 6, there was a man sent from, how does your Bible translate it? With a capital G or a small g? Do you have a capital G? Yes? No? Verse, I'm in John 1, verse 6. Okay. Does it have a capital G or a small g? Capital. Okay. What do you have? Jump down a little bit further. What do you have down in verse, uh, verse 12? Capital or small? Capital. Verse 13. Capital or small? Every one of those gods, let, let me rephrase it, none of them have in the original language T-H-E in the Greek. They're all just God. And yet all of our Bibles translates it correctly. In fact, let me add this, even the New World Translation that the Jehovah Witness use, it will translate verse 6, 11, 6, 12, and 13. All of those verses use capital G the way it should be. It's like, okay, why did you just pick one verse to all of a sudden change your grammatical rules? That makes no sense. And so we say, well, why is it doing this? And again, not to make you big scholars, but in the Greek language, the way they do things at times is they want to help identify which noun is going to be the subject of the sentence. If, the, if a noun showed up after the verb and it was the subject of the sentence, it had to have in the Greek, the T-H-E, or the article. It didn't need it otherwise. But this is how they would identify a sentence because they're not like us in English. In English, we usually go subject, verb, direct object. In the Greek, you could put it any order you want. But if you changed that, if you did that order where the subject was after the verb, it had to have an article, the T-H-E, in the Greek. And so then if we look at exactly the way this is translated, verbatim in the Greek, it says, God was the word. Okay, that's the phrase, word for word, the way it should be. But you look at that and say, okay, what's that indicating in the original language? The word is the subject. The word is the, is the most important thought here. It's the subject. Therefore, God was put at the beginning of the phrase for an emphasis, to make it very clear to the reader who understood Greek language and Greek grammar that the idea here then translated into English to give you the sense should read or be this. The word was God. Emphatic. Not a God. And so when those people come to your door and they say those things, just, you know, tell them you know more Greek than they do. Okay? You, and you do. You do, by the way, you're going to translate this. You understand it better. So the, the text is very, very clear. From the very, he's saying, this one I'm going to tell you about, the word was God. He was eternal. And then he goes on, he talks about this one. He had the power to create. He, he made all things. Look at verse 3. It, isn't it? He says it twice. He wants you and me, the reader, to understand. He made everything. In fact, not only did he make everything... Nothing that exists wasn't made by him. Did I say that right? 
Okay, I did double negative, I threw myself off. Okay, in other words, everything that was made was made by him. The author is stressing this. He wants you and me to get this, that he's creator. There's not a single thing in this world that he isn't the source of. Everything, from the biggest to the smallest, it was a result of him. There isn't anything that is here in creation that at the very beginning that was created that wasn't a result of the work of Jesus Christ, the word. Not a thing. Not a thing. You know, and by the way, this, this fits exactly what the Bible teaches elsewhere. We read already when we did Colossians last year that by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are earth, visible and visible. All things were created by him in Corinthians. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him. And there's one Lord... Okay, this is the Trinity again. And by whom are all things, and even we get our life from Jesus Christ. And so he's making this thought. But but again, you're going to have some people come to the door, and they're going to say, but Jesus was a created being. Jesus wasn't eternal. And you go, how do you see that from John chapter 1? Well, he's a little God. And it, it just makes no sense. What doesn't make sense is what you're saying from your own Bible. If, according to what you believe, according to your own Bible that you're holding in your lap, do you believe what it says in verse 3? That Jesus Christ created everything. Yeah, I believe he created everything. Okay, he made all things. But he was a created being. But he made everything. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I don't understand this. If Jesus Christ made everything, you're saying he made himself. That's what you've got to be saying. If you're saying he's created and yet he made everything, he made himself. How is that possible? How does that fit into your theology? And so what we have is the author just making it very clear that Jesus is the highest authority. Starts off right away saying, hey, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you about somebody who has the authority of the, of, he's the word of God. He is God himself. He's everlasting. He's creator of you and of me and of everything. He's over us. He's above us. He has control of everything. And I want to tell you about him. He, this one who is so mighty and so majestic, he should be in control of your life. You should believe in him. But there's a second reason why. A second reason why, because of his ability. He goes on in the rest of the verses and talks about what Jesus possesses. We already mentioned that Jesus created But he goes on and he makes this comment about what is within Jesus, what Jesus could do. And he says, in him, life. In him is life. We we read that in the next verse, where it goes on and says, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything that was made. Makes perfect sense. You're talking about everything that came into creation. In him, life. And the life was the light of the men. So he's giving us this idea and giving us this idea that, that creation relies upon him, but it is interesting, very interesting, the word he uses for life. You see, in the, in the, in the Gospel of John, he uses different words for life. Okay? He uses, it translates into English 47 times life in the Gospel of John. And in those 47 times, he uses different words in the Greek, just like you might use different words for you know, hungry. Some of you right now are hungry, starving, 
famished. You're hangry. Okay? You have different words to describe it. So he uses different words at times to describe life. He, you, you figure it out right away. You look and say, okay, bios makes sense. We get biology, those types of things. Uh, suke or psyche makes sense. He's talking mostly about mental life. But the word that he uses here and uses most frequently in John is zoe. And that is a unique word. It can be referring to physical life. It can refer to your emotional life. It can refer to your mental state. It can refer to your spiritual state. Most of the time in the Gospel of John, when he uses zoe, he's referring to spiritual life. And so what he's doing is he's saying, in him was zoe. Now this would relate to us. We would, we would our ears should perk up. Because here in this room, the reality is that for us, probably the greatest possession we have is life. I mean, in all seriousness, if you were told you are extremely ill and you need to do something to maintain life, most every one of us would do something. Most, most of us, you know, we, we drive in such a way as we're trying to protect life. Most of us, okay. We, if we see, you know, if we're walking across the street and we see a semi coming towards us, most of us would do what's necessary to get away from that semi to maintain our life. In fact, what are most of you going to do as soon as I say amen and you get out of here? What are you going to do to maintain life? And eat, and eat, okay? And you're going to sleep, okay? Because it's a valuable possession. And he's saying to us, Jesus Christ is the source of our zoe, that which we consider most important. So you think this through, that means to you and me, he's the source of our physical life. No wonder later in the Gospels he's going to encourage us to give our physical lives to him. Because he's the one who gave it to us. He has bought us. We are bought with the price. It, he's the source of our spiritual life. That's what he's implying. And he's going to develop further and further. He's the source of our eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Very clear, it's Jesus. He's the source of abundant life. For us to have peace and joy and, and that, 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 that ability to handle difficulties and trials. And if we just stop for a moment and think, okay, what's needed for life? What do we got to have to have life? Well, there's some basic necessities we need in order to live. We need food, water, light, air. If, the, if they don't exist, we die. It is interesting that in the Gospel of John, he highlights this about Jesus Christ, every one of these. That Jesus, who is the source of life, is he our food spiritually? I am the bread of life. What about the water? He talks to the woman at the well. And he talks again at the, at the temple feast where he says, out of my stomach shall flow rivers of water. If any man shall drink of the water that I provide, he shall never thirst again and have eternal life. When you think about the light, I am the light of the world. When you think about air, Jesus breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Ghost. Jesus is the source of life for us who are opening up this book. 
He's the source of physical, emotional, spiritual, eternal life. And so what do we do? We should respond with belief in him because not only is he our source of life, but he's our source of light. Light can be here, this light that we have right here in the room. Light can be the idea of understanding and awareness. In John, you know, he, makes a, he uses this theme a lot. He talks about light, light, light. Jesus is the light. Be, before we develop that, before we do anything, what are the advantages of light? What, what are the benefits of having light? A, at your house, what are the benefits of having light? You see what you're doing? Somebody else. It does what? I, I, you have to be louder, please. Light improves your mood. The more light you get, the more moody you get. Okay. Okay, you're, you're talking like some people who live in cloudy areas, okay, that they have sad, okay, the syndrome. What else does light do for you? To read. What's that? Warmth? Yeah, does it do that? What, is, what does light do for your kids? Uh, let, me, let me see if I can put it this way. Your kids need to go to bed, okay? But there's that thing underneath their bed that, that will crawl out and grab them. So what might you turn on? So that they go to sleep. I mean, you can't have the light on when you go to sleep, but does it, does it calm people down? Okay, is light helpful in any other way? I'm sorry? It helps things to grow. Excellent. Anything else? Diagnostics. Let's get to a science term here, okay? Yeah. And it, it reveals things, right? Anything else that light does that's beneficial? Safety. Okay, so I'm walking now um, in my physical fitness routine. I try to walk on a daily basis. I get about 10 feet. Uh, that shows. No, so I, I usually try to walk a half hour, and quite a few times it ends up late at evening when things slow down. And so one of the areas that I walk, it's down your street just a little bit. It's really dark at the other end of your street. There's no, there's no street lights. And I've not had a problem until this week. So I'm walking down the street. Was it last week? I'm walking. I'm getting old. Okay, so I forget when it was. This whole story shows you I'm getting old. I'm walking down the street, and all of a sudden I'm listening to my iPad, enjoying the message I'm listening to, and it wasn't me. It was somebody else. Um, And I don't enjoy listening to me, just to set that straight. So I'm walking down the street, enjoying this message, and... I'm, it's dark at this one spot. And the sidewalk, for some reason, at that one singular moment, it jutted up. It went back down. No, it didn't. It jutted up, and I hit this one spot, and the next thing I knew, I was an old man on the floor. Okay? And I, not on the floor, but on the sidewalk. And I scraped up my hand and bruised my shoulder and smacked my cell phone. My glasses were gone. And I'm laying there thinking, oh, you're old. <laughs> this is what they talk about when they fall. Okay. And I'm starting thinking, don't, don't move too quick. Is it working? Is it working? Is it working? Okay, everything is working. I don't think anything's broken. And I'm still face down on the sidewalk like this. 
And all of a sudden it dawns on me, somebody may have seen me. <laughs> I sat up right away, and I'm looking around. Whew, nobody saw me. You know, the most concerned thing is that somebody see me. And I hobbled myself up, and wouldn't I know I'm halfway through the spot of my walk, and it's like, do I call her to come and pick me up, or do I continue this walk? And would light have helped? Yes, so the next night I took my flashlight, okay? And I'm going down, and some guy stopped last night, or the night before, and he said, are you okay? I said, yes. He says, well, you have a flashlight. I just want to make sure you're okay. Were you trying to signal me? (laughs) Go away, okay? (laughs) Is light beneficial to protect us? So all these things we put together on light... 36 times it shows up in the gospel. Light, 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 light. And that whole idea, Jesus is the light. It's all over scriptures. It's there. That it's just, and what is usually darkness picture? Sin, sin. So darkness. And time and time again, you know, God is light. Men love darkness rather than the light. We, we understand those pictures. We understand that light and darkness don't coexist at the same time. We understand that. To get rid of darkness, what do you do? Turn on the light, okay? You take your flashlight with you, okay? So you come back. What is he saying here? Is he saying that Jesus, the one who's come, is going to oppose all the evil? He's the light. He's the one who's the opponent against Satan and against sinfulness. And then he says in verse 5 a very interesting phrase. Now, you may have it comprehend. Do you have comprehend in verse 5? That, that darkness doesn't comprehend light? Is that what you have? Okay. Okay, that, that's a possibility. But more often, the word that's used there is the word overcome that instead of comprehend. It's the idea of physically grasping and putting under control. And he says, darkness doesn't do that to the light. Well, that makes sense because who tried to get rid of Jesus? Satan in darkness. Okay, they tried to destroy Jesus. But what did Jesus do on the third day? He overcame the darkness, and he rose again. So all of this is just giving us this idea of this Jesus who scatters the darkness, who as such, he's the one that provides us with the benefits that we just talked about. Not only does he overcome the darkness of this world, but how about the darkness of our mind? Does Jesus help us to overcome sinful tendencies that we may have? Absolutely. Does Jesus clear up the confusion that we may have about what decisions to make and give us light and direction? Okay, let me ask you this. Does Jesus comfort your spirit? Yes or no? Okay, does he encourage you? Does he refresh you? Does he improve your mood, Stacy? Okay, you said that dark, you know. The light. Does Christ improve our mood when we get close to him? He is the one that in abundant life, he provides what we need as the light of the world and the light. And you and I, sometimes we don't like light, right? You're driving down the road, and you don't mind that other driver coming, and that's what? They got their bright light on. Does it happen to you? Oh, yeah. The other night, I'm driving down the road, and that guy keeps flashing his brights at me. And it was like, what are you doing, dude? Guess what I realized? 
I had my brights and he was flashing to get me to turn them off. Uh, some of you, some of you, what happens when you're sound asleep and you're enjoying that dream and it is so wonderful. You're rich. Everything is going great. And somebody turns on the light. And what's your reaction? Turn off that light. I want to go back to the, my other world. Are there moments that you do that here, right here? Turn off the light of the word. I'm content with the way I'm doing my family. I'm okay with the way that I do what I do. I don't want the light of Jesus providing conviction to my spirit, but he does because he's light and he loves you and he wants you to grow. And the world as a whole, though, they don't like it because men love darkness. And when he came, what does he go on to tell us? He says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it. But he goes on and he talks about this one, verse 9, that was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. He was made in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own with this light and his own received him not. Why is that? Because men love darkness rather than light. And he goes on, and in this text, he says, this great God, this creator, this one who is life, this one who is light, what did he do? And he's going to introduce the story that he's going to further develop. He says, this guy, this one, he, he came to this earth. This God became flesh, the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas time. And it's going to become a theme right here. He's going to make a comment to it on a couple different ways that he says, I'm, going to, I'm testifying of this. He wrapped up the book saying, I'm testifying of this. That Jesus came in the flesh. That he arrived as a man. He was born as a people. He was God. He was eternal. But he chose to come to be birthed as a people like you and me. And John is going to emphasize this. And he's going to make, bring it up over and over and over in the, in the gospel. Why is that? Because the people in John's day, there was a group of people that were going about and saying, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He was just a spirit that showed up once in a while. In fact, there was a popular teaching going around the same time that was written by some pseudo-Christian writers in the first century that said when Jesus walked along the shore of Galilee, he didn't leave footprints because he wasn't people. He was just an emanation. He was just a spirit. And he never left a footprint. And he didn't eat. He didn't do all of this. But John writes about how Jesus was really in the flesh. He writes that Jesus at one time became weary. He says he became thirsty. These aren't things that God, a spirit, experienced. This is what people experience, fleshly beings, animals as well, but material beings is my point. He says that Jesus bled. Spirits don't bleed. Jesus bled. But what's the ultimate? What did Jesus do? He died. Jesus died. And so very clearly John is saying, Jesus came in the flesh. This is an important truth. In fact, John is going to write later on, for those of you in the church for those of you who claim to be followers of Jesus and you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, those of you who claim to be scholars and you say that Jesus never came in the flesh, what is he going to say about them? 
John writes, he says, every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, you're not of God. You're not of God. You are of Antichrist. If you don't believe this doctrine that God came in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, he says, then, then you're of Antichrist. So at the beginning of this book, he's going to say, okay, Jesus came in the flesh. God came in the flesh. And my big question out of this text is, why did he come in the flesh? He tells us in this opening verse, this opening section. He said he came to reveal God. To reveal God. Why does God need to be revealed? Because God is invisible. We don't see God. Uh, we, We don't comprehend God. God is beyond us, above us. And so he says, I want this, I want you to tell you, this guy who came, this one, this God who comes in the flesh, he's revealing God to us, and he can do it because he was in the bosom with, of God. He, if you go down in the passage, he talks about it. He says that, uh, that oh, I didn't put the reference up there. Um, in verse 18, he says he was in the bosom of the Father. And so he's extremely close. He was with God. And so he's able to reveal God. And in fact, as you look at verse 18, he uses a word that's interesting for you. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has... What's your Bible read? Okay, do you want to know what the word is? Exegeted. Do you know what exegete means? Exegete scripture is what I'm doing right now explaining and giving you the details of the scripture. That's exegeting. That's expounding fully. That's, that's giving all the details, helping you to understand. That's what Jesus did with God to you. Jesus said, uh, Jesus came with this in mind. I'm going to show you, every one of you, what God is like. I'm part of that Godhead. I'm going to show you what he's like. And so what he did is, Jesus is able to reveal God the Father because we studied this last year. He is the image of God. The perfect exact representation. That's what Hebrews writes in one. The express image or icon, the stamped coin where you get the face of the Caesar. Jesus was the stamped image of God. What he looked like, what he did, how he acted, how he would respond, how he loved. And so Jesus is revealing God. Now, some are going to say this to you. If he came as a man, he must have given up some of his godhood, his godness. And John is saying, come on. Look at how John does this. Just what the lady sang. The very words that the lady sang earlier. Twice in this text, he says it very clear, full. Full of grace and truth. His fullness the idea, that's an expression that comes from other God, uh, that's used elsewhere in the epistles. The fullness of the Godhead. Jesus was it. He was completely God. So he comes to reveal God. That's why in that evening when he says, I'm going, going away and where I go you can come. And Thomas says, Lord, all you have to do is show us the Father. And if you'd show us the Father, we'd be okay. And Jesus responds, have I been so long with you and you don't know? If you saw me, you saw the Father. You know what God is like. You know what he wants from you. But there's a second thing Jesus came to do. To redeem men. He makes it clear where he says that he was the light. Back up into what happens in verse 11. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But 
As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. The redemption that he's talking about is Jesus coming in the flesh for one reason. He came to his own to reveal the Father, to redeem them, to help them to, 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 to have eternal life. And yet, we all know what happened. The Jews, when Jesus came, they rejected him. His own received him not. And by the way, just, just for clarification, um, the first part of the verse where it says, he came unto his own, it is a neuter type of a, of a noun that's used. He came unto his own things, could be the possible translation and reference, and his own people, the Jews. He came to creation, everything created, down to mankind in general, and specifically to the Jews. And so they received him not, they rejected him. And it's amazing because they of all people should have known Jesus. The Jews had all the information. But they received him not, okay? Then he goes on, but to us who did receive him and believe on his name. Understand what he's doing. Receiving and believing are equal here. It's, it's, there, there aren't all these different terms for what you need to do to get saved. There are multiple different, uh, different concepts, but all the same thing. Receive Christ. Believe in Christ. Same idea, though it's expressed with different words. And as you look at that phrase, and just dissect it with me, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of the flesh. This is an amazing verse. This is a phenomenal verse that he's talking about, receiving and believing. That he says, as many as, this is something every one of you can do. As many as. This isn't limited to just a certain group or certain age or a certain sect or a certain country or citizenship. Anybody can receive Christ, can believe on him. He makes it clear, he says, if you do that, if you receive Christ, if you believe on him, God will begin a work in your life. God gave power and then he goes on and he says that I do become the sons of God. That, that phrase, to become the sons of God, is really, really precious. It's that whole idea that something will happen to you that wasn't there before. And see, this is a misnomer. This is the mistake that many Americans are making right now in church, right at this moment. They believe that everybody's a son of God. Everybody's God's child. That's not true by the scriptures. When it comes to creation, yes, we are all created by him. But to be his techna, the one who would be inherit, be in his family, to be really a part of God's family, to be related to him in a very special sense, just as your biological children are related to you, they are techna. He says, in the same way to you be related to God, to be a part of his family, you must be born again. You must have something change in your life. It's not something that's been there all along. You need to receive and believe in him so that you can all of a sudden become, be birthed into his family. And he goes on, he says, this isn't something that happens by blood. Literally, bloods. Is he referring to the Jewish Jews who thought by bloodline, by family ancestry they're getting to heaven, the same way that some people here say, well, because my family goes to church... Because I'm an American, I'm going to get to heaven. And, they, and he says, no, no, no. This isn't by the will of man. This is only something that God and God alone can do 
for you, not by the will of man, but of God, that you become part of God's family, live with him forever and ever. It is called believing in Jesus Christ. You need to receive and believe in him. That's why he came. He came to reveal the Father, to redeem us. He makes it very clear at the Christmas story. He's come to seek, he says, that he shall be called Jesus to save his people from their sins. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost, which was you and me. Which brings us to one thing that's not in your notes, but it's here in the text. There's a third reason he came, to restore, to refresh. How do I know that? Because look at verse 16. He says, and of his fullness have we received. Grace for grace. What's he mean by that? John is writing and saying, me, I've believed. I've received Christ. So my friends that are going to write in here and talk about it, Nathan and Peter, the others, we have received this. And when we received Christ, when we became believers, okay, we all of a sudden experienced something, grace and truth. That grace and truth, that understanding that comes by the word of God, that, that salvation, forgiveness of sins that only Jesus can provide. And he says, as I look back on my life, it is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that even as a believer, I experience the refreshing, the, the restoring, the, the recouping, whatever word you want to put in there. That Jesus gives me week after week after week. Has that ever happened to you? That you felt absolutely defeated and Jesus refreshed your spirit. You felt overcome by work, by society, and Jesus rebuilds you. You felt like you didn't know what to do and Jesus gives you a refreshing of your mind and of your spirit. He gives you revival in your heart. He says grace upon grace that we didn't deserve after, even after being saved. But he just gives it to us and gives it to us. Look at your family. Have you experienced grace upon grace upon grace? Look at the way God answered your prayers this year. Have you experienced grace upon grace upon grace? Look at the way God has kept you where you're able to provide and to work and do grace upon grace upon grace. All of this just says, wow. We need to believe on him. We need to not wander away. We need to just really be focused on Jesus Christ. And after he says all that, his authority, his ability, his activity, he concludes, and I'm going to call it the ascendancy of Christ. You know what it means to ascend, to lift up, to be elevated. Well, John in this book, he says, I'm elevating Christ. I'm going to lift up Jesus Christ. This one who is so mighty, who is so great. In fact, he is, verse 17, he's above Moses. He's better than the law. For a Jew, that would mean something. Well, when you go through the story, and we read in verse 19 that the, the Jewish leader said, John, are you, the, are you the Messiah? And John makes it very clear as he starts talking. He says, I'm not the Messiah. In fact, look at John the Baptist, bear witness of him in verse 15. He says, this is he of whom I spake. He that comes after me is what? Preferred before me, for he, is, he was even before me. Go down to verse 27. He it is who comes after me is preferred before me, whose shoes laces I am not even worthy to unloosen. Verse 29, the next day John sees Jesus coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Go to John chapter 3 and look at this little phrase where John is speaking. 
And we read that he says, in verse 28 he says, uh, verse 27, a man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. You yourselves, you who are my helpers, you bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I am the one that was sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which stands, you know, who stands and hears him rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy when that is fulfilled. He must increase. I must. The ascendancy of Christ in John's life, in John the writer. John the writer is writing these profound truths that to you may be boring, but to think about the greatness of Christ, it is amazing to me that this great God would come in the flesh and pour all grace upon grace upon grace for you and me. It's humbling. And as I read this text, I'm thinking John is doing such a wonderful job. He is sharing such in-depth, meaty truth to believers, to stir up believers to believe, to trust, to follow this Christ more. And John wasn't hesitant to to give up this meaty truth. And I debated this week. This seems too hard, too in-depth. Some people will be bored by getting into this text and it will be, oh well. And yet I look and I was challenged to say, God led the author of this book to write the deep truths of Jesus for believers to read and to understand. So to lift up Christ, I needed to share these in-depth, meaty truths with you and pray that the Spirit of God would help you to believe, to trust, to turn to Him more and more and more as the life and the light. John did it. Even though there was believers, even though some who would hear this message would prefer to have darkness and would turn to the darkness, even though when John did this and wrote this, he was going to be persecuted for it. He was going to lift up Christ. He was going to elevate him. Though it would cost him dearly. The lesson's clear. This one with great authority, great ability, great activity needs to be lifted up by you and me. He needs to be elevated by us. He is the reason for the season, and that's not cliche. That's reality. He is the one who, is, who deserves our worship, our praise. This, this, what we give for this hour and a half, this is nothing compared to what he truly deserves. If this is in your mind, you've done something really special for Jesus, an hour and a half a week? Wow. Then we don't appreciate who he really is. Then we don't understand how majestic he is, how gracious he is. So what do we do with this Jesus? Where do we take all of this? Two thoughts. One is you need to believe in him. If you are here this morning, you're listening as well, you need to believe in him as being your one and only Savior. Forget the baptism, forget the church, going to church, forget giving money, forget memorizing scripture. You need a Savior. You need Jesus Christ. He is the one and only And in a moment when we sing, we're having staff go to these doors right over here that lead down a hallway where there's a lot of private rooms. 
And if you have yet to accept the Christmas gift of Jesus as your Savior, with that you would have forgiveness of sins for all eternity and the gift of eternal life in heaven. Then when we sing, go and see one of those people over here and to find out what you need to do, what you need to pray to get that gift. You who have already done that, you need to remember and believe that Jesus is the sovereign of our lives. He knows what's best. He is doing what's best. We need to remember that he is the source of all that we need to handle life and turn to him time and time and time again. But I said there's two things you need to do. You need to bless him. You need to lift him up. You need to praise him and worship him. You need to be the one who would, no matter what's going on, do what John did. Tell somebody this week about Jesus. Share Christ. Bring some friends to the reenactment to hear his story. Make sure others know about this Jesus and how great he is. You need to lift him up and worship. There's a song written a long, long time ago. And when it was written, it had tremendous impact. And it asks the question, what child is this? Actually, the author knows. And he writes in such a way that we can praise while we're worshiping in song. I've used this morning the old, original stanzas of the song. The original stanzas that talk about Jesus and his suffering that are no longer used in most hymnals. But to you and me, they have meaning because they describe to us how great this Christ is, his grace upon grace upon grace. I'm going to ask you before we just close and leave, to just sing with me in worship this morning to this great Christ, this child who is the God, who is the Lord. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap was sleeping? keeping this this is Christ the King whom shepherds card angels sing haste haste to bring him Lord the babe the son of Mary why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding good Christian a silent word is pleading no spear shall pierce him through the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense and myrrh as king to own the King of kings salvation brings 
Let loving hearts enthrone him. Praise, raise the song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, the Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. And Father, thank you. Thank you that your son was willing to come and to shed his life so we could have grace upon grace. Help us to lift you up this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thanks, folks. See you tonight.